0: charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship.
1: This is a paid advertisement. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Visit biggerpockets.com slash Vicasa, spelled V A C A S A, and get a free personalized income estimate today. That's biggerpockets.com slash Vicasa.
0: Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to On the Market. I am super excited that you are all joining me here today for my conversation with Cal Inman, who is the creator and principal of Climate Check. Climate Check is a website that provides really cool and pretty unique data about what risks exist based on your property for climate. So whether that's wildfires or floods or extreme winds or hurricane Basically, every property in the country has some level of risk from natural disaster or climate. And depending on where you live, it could be really different. Obviously, um, I talk about this a little bit in the episode. You know, in Colorado, we have a lot of risk of wildfire. I experienced that directly with one of my properties. But if you live on the coast, maybe it's hurricane or wind or flooding or something like that. And this data that Cal and his team have created can be a really helpful asset to investors When they're underwriting their deals, whether you're projecting, you know, predicting or trying to figure out where you want to invest next, or if you're looking at a particular property and want to understand the risk, that is really helpful when you're trying to understand what you should be buying. And that's what we're going to talk all about today, as well as some strategies that you can use to mitigate any of those risks. So, with no further ado, let's get into my conversation with Cal Inman, the creator and principal at Climate Check.
1: Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A. Biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. I used to think working from home was the dream, until it wasn't. Between the distractions and the solitude, I was struggling. But then, I discovered Industrious Office, and honestly, it's been a game changer. Every day at Industrious feels like stepping into a zone of productivity. The high-speed internet never fails me during crucial moments, and the workspace? It's not only stylish, but designed to boost your focus and creativity. Plus, the daily breakfast and endless coffees are super cool. Meeting other driven professionals right where I work has not just expanded my network, it's inspired me. It's amazing how being around other focused people can push you to achieve more, you know what I mean? If you're looking for a sign to change your workspace, this is it. Check out Industrious by visiting biggerpockets.com industrious. Then click join now and use the promo code POCKETS to get a free week of co-working when you take a tour. That's BiggerPockets.com slash Industrious and use promo code Pockets after clicking Join Now. Experience for yourself how the right environment can change the way you work. Industrious, it's where your best work happens. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.
0: Cal Inman, welcome to On The Market. Thank you so much for being here today.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: So I'm looking at your, I've previously looked into your background and you are a real estate developer, a real estate investor, uh, a grad school lecturer at UC Berkeley and the creator and principal at Climate Check. So can you just tell us a little bit about your background briefly and how you got into all these things being a real estate developer and ultimately the, the founder of Climate Check?
2: Yeah, that's, I guess it sounds like a lot when you put it like that. I have a short attention span, I think, is the executive summary. <laughs> um, I grew up in uh, the Bay Area. My father was a journalist, and he covered uh, real estate news. So I kind of got a deep dive into interviewing all these real estate developers, and I was just totally intrigued by it. Uh, worked for a developer, kind of cut my teeth, learned a lot about the process. Uh, went out on my own, started doing small, single-family uh, then rolled that into apartments, then did more commercial style, style buildings, uh, small office, small retail, uh, did that from 2009, uh, to 2016 or so, then started lecturing at UC Berkeley masters in real estate development. Um, and that was cool. Uh, and I still do that. It's a great experience. Uh, the, the folks in there, I'm just super excited to go build buildings, invest. And uh, while I was there, I, I kind of came across this climate data. And uh, while I had rental properties and yeah, super curious how they're gonna be affected by climate change. You read about climate change in the news. Um, you know, icebergs melting. This is uh, existential risk that's gonna affect everyone. Uh, and how are my properties going to be affected? Uh, are my properties in West Oakland along the San Francisco Bay going to flood with sea level rise? Is there going to be another fire in the Oakland Hills uh, that I experienced when I was a kid? Are those rental properties at risk for uh, burning? And uh, tried to search for the information and it wasn't really available. Um, and I, I, I primarily think about it when I was renewing insurance policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I came across... Um, these climate risk data sets. And the next thing I found out was that a lot of big institutional developers and investors, uh, big LPs were using this data to inform their real estate decisions, right? Their due diligence, how they're going to improve properties, what properties they're going to dispose of, uh, how they're structuring their insurance policies. And, um, it felt like I deserved access to this information too. Uh, smaller single family homeowners deserve to access this information. And that's a sort of set me on a new trajectory toward, uh, toward climate data and building climate check.
0: That's a a really interesting story. I do want to get all into, to climate check, but now I'm, I'm curious just about your own real estate investing first. Are you still developing properties and buying rental properties? And are you primarily still doing that in the Bay area of California?
2: You know, uh, here in the Bay area yield on investments is, is tough. Uh, there's too much capital in the market. Uh, and I haven't been able to really make deals pencil for the last four years and I was kind of early to exit. Um, I still invest in real estate. I still own property. Um, but I'm not an active sponsor, uh, in ground up real estate development deals at all. I'm uh, 120% into this data world. Uh, I still lecture at UC Berkeley, so I still kind of keep my foot in it. Uh, A lot of friends are still active. And I invest in in deals uh, still. So uh, I'd say I'm still active, but I'm not out there, boots on the ground, buying parcels, building buildings.
0: Got it. All right. Well, let's get into the data. Obviously, that is my area of interest and expertise. So, can you tell me a little bit about you said you're, you know, you're lecturing, you're curious. Like, what was your first encounter with this information and what like what data is it? Like, what are you actually physically looking at when you talk about climate-related data?
2: Yeah, totally. Uh, it's a really good question. Um, So when we talk about physical climate risk data, um, we're looking at how natural hazards are going to increase or decrease in uh, intensity moving into the future. Um, And so that we look at six hazards, Uh, wildfire, flood, uh, which is more complex, we can come back to that, extreme heat, extreme precipitation, uh, drought, and high winds. And so we look at what's the risk profile of each of these perils today, and then what's the risk profile in the future and how is that changing? Uh, So when we look at something like flood, for instance, um, we measure what's the probability it's going to happen and then what's the intensity of it. So in the future, we have a 40% chance of a two foot flood on your parcel at 123 Main Street. Um, And so we try to take these kind of very complex concepts and make them easy to understand, because I think most people get, you know, basic percent chance of a flood happening that's a foot deep. Um, So we give a one through 100 score of risk rating, 100 being the riskiest, one being the safest, and then we give these metrics alongside it.
0: And how do most real estate investors or homeowners, for that matter, I assume both groups use your tool. How do they use this data?
2: Yeah. So I'd say the primary group using this information are investors, the folks on the equity part of the capital stack, private equity, REITs, and they're using it the same way they look at any risk data. Um, Due diligence of new assets, right? When we buy a new industrial asset that's a cross docking station, or a multi-family property. Wh- whatever you're buying, we do a lot of due diligence. I mean, protecting our downside in real estate is kind of like 90% of the work. Uh, and then creating the value is the last 10%. Um, so when we look at all these factors, are there underground storage tanks? What's the market risk? Uh, what's the risk of the tenants? Um, what's the risk of the municipality? Uh, climate risk, the risk of these natural hazards increasing into the future fits nicely into that due diligence process. So I'd say that's the first way it's used. A second way is kind of just overall portfolio analytics. Let's look at existing portfolios every year and let's understand how, what the risk profile of it is. Um, And kind of the last way it's used is to kind of inform investment thesis. So we have a portfolio of properties. We might have an outsized exposure to risk to a certain hazard. And uh, we might want to diversify into other regions with different risks or less of that risk.
0: Got it. That, that makes sense. So it sounds like people, you know, when you're buying a new asset are using this to understand their own risk. And then when you're building a portfolio or perhaps even looking for insurance policies, this could be another uh, time to start using this data. So have you, you mentioned that institutional investors were previously using this data have they always been looking at climate risk and now it's becoming more important or is this a totally new data set to the real estate investing industry
2: yeah i mean there's a good question i mean it's a relatively new data set um we're bringing more and more data i mean even when you look at phase one uh, environmental data this is n- you know, relatively new, the eighties and the nineties. And then, uh, by the late nineties, it just became completely ubiquitous. Every, uh, commercial property we buy, we get a phase one report on. Um, and we're kind of seeing the same progression here for climate risk, uh, reports. It's becoming best practices. I think you'll find most REITs, big private equity shops are using this data when they're buying new assets. Um, and, um, As more and more folks use it, the rest of the the investors wanna also be looking at it because possibly when you're buying a property that you wanna sell in three to seven years, if the buyer of that property is looking at this data, you wanna be aware of it before you purchase that property because it's gonna affect your exit value and ultimately affect your IRR, which is kind of what we're looking at when we're investors, what's the return? And that exit, that disposition value is probably the biggest chunk in your IRR calculation as an investor. So I think to boil it down, I think that's probably the most important reason and why most most people are starting to ingest this data.
0: That's, that's really interesting. I didn't think about that because obviously as an investor, you know, if you're at risk or flood or wildfire, you want to know that during your hold period. But especially if you're buying you know, a multifamily or something that's going to be purchased by an institutional buyer, like uh, a, a hedge fund or a private equity firm coming in there. If they're, as you're saying, looking at this, then you should be basing your valuations off the same thing that they're going to be basing their valuations off. So that's super interesting. Um, what, data are like, are you creating this data? Do you have your own climate models? Or are you aggregating other data from sources?
2: Yeah. Yeah. What are the inputs? Uh, so, I mean, our team is a hundred percent product focused. So it's a team of data scientists, climatologists, and what uh, they do, and they're a lot smarter than me, what they do is aggregate all kind of the best climate data downscaled climate data, academic data, government data, bring it all into one place, synthesize it in some ways so we can search it on a parcel level and then query it for the information that's useful for you when you're buying a new property. Um, We do some in-house modeling where there's gaps in that data, uh, but I think if you think about it like a cake, all of the ingredients we get are Academic and government sources.
0: Okay, so you're you're taking all these third party sources and, like you said, connecting them so that if I say I have one, two, three mainstream re- street, excuse me, you could have all this different data related to that property, and that as an investor or homeowner, you can get a good sense of uh, what the risk is.
2: Oh yeah, I was just. I mean, I, 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 I tend to oversimplify. It. So like, if if you look at Flooding, for instance, at your property at 123 Main Street. We use government elevation maps, which are topographic maps. We use uh, government uh, information and data around what soil type is at that property, and then we'll use these projected climate models to do understand the rainfall, future rainfall volumes, and then we'll fl- we'll do a, a, a flood model of the entire United States, and we'll understand at your property at 123 Main Street, what does water accumulate there and what's the depth of it? So there's a lot of synthesis and modeling into it. But again, all those fundamental building blocks are all uh, government and academic data sources.
0: Got it. I actually, I actually came across your company because I, about a year or so ago, was investing or looking to invest in a syndication, multifamily syndication in Houston. And I talked to a friend who used to live in Houston. And he was like, man, you gotta make sure you're not in a floodplain in Houston. And I was like, oh man, I've never even thought about something like that. And so I started Googling all this information and came across climate check, but all sorts of data sets that was complicated. You know, it was, it was hard to understand. So I definitely appreciate that you and your, your company are making it easier for people to simply understand what's going on there. Um, now, of course, some climate risk has always existed, right? You know, floods have always existed. There have been wildfires. Um, What does the data tell you about how the quantity and severity of climate risk is changing over time?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think across every hazard's different, uh, first of all, and every region's different. Um, And even every neighborhood's different. Uh, we have different exposure to risk. And I think that's why it's really important to understand the data uh, on a granular local level uh, because the story is different everywhere. But I'd say overarching kind of themes, we're seeing an increased uh, frequency uh, and severity of kind of the fundamental uh, pieces of climate change, which are precipitation and heat. We're seeing more hot days and hotter days moving into the future. And I'm talking over a pretty big window of time, right? 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And we're also seeing a higher frequency of heavy rainfall events. And those two things kind of feed into the rest of these hazards. Uh, So we're seeing an increased frequency of flooding and uh, deeper floods, more inundation. Uh, And same with fire. Uh, some regions are getting better, and they're all changing, and the hazards that each community is exposed to are different. Uh, but there, there is a higher frequency of, of, uh, of these events.
0: And have you seen yet that the availability of this data and the increased risk of climate hazards, has it yet impacted homebuyer decisions?
2: I think on the home buyer level, there's a lot going into that transaction and uh, a lot of it's emotional, but I think it starts with where's my job? Okay, I'm a remote worker. Where's my family? Uh, What's the school district? Uh, Probably the first question, what's the price point? (laughs) And uh, there's all these factors that go in and and same with the commercial real estate transaction. Uh, We're looking at a lot of things, Um, yield, demographics. Uh, so this is, you know, one data point alongside all these other things that we think about in a transaction, whether you're a home buyer, uh, or whether, whether you're an investor. Um, but to answer your question, there aren't strong signals, uh, right now, uh, impacting value and climate risk. Um, that being said, as more and more people ingest it, and particularly once lenders start ingesting the data, um, you know, we see a world where where that does start affecting values uh, and and something we need to think about.
0: Interesting. So a lender might, you know, the appraisal, for example, might be impacted on a lender or similar to how a lot of mortgage companies won't lend on a property that's not up to code or needs a ton of rehab work. If there is a property that has a significant amount of climate risk, it might be difficult to get a loan. I had not thought about that at all. Um, but that's a really interesting point. I had more, you know, when I was thinking about this show, uh, my immediate thought went to insurance, right? Because you already start to see that, that insurance in places where there's risk of hurricane or flooding or, or wildfires or whatever, um, that, those have gone up a lot recently and are probably continuing to do so. Uh, do you, does, do insurance companies use this data currently, your data or any data like this when they're evaluating properties?
2: Yeah, we don't license into the insurance industry, uh, but they do. They look at all sorts of data. Um, I think fundamentally they're underwriting your policy with something called a catastrophic, uh, risk model, which looks at historical data, um, but if you think about kind of w- what what an insurer is giving you, they're giving you a policy that covers you for one year into the future. And when we're looking at these uh, signals and, and climate risk, uh, the profile of each of these hazards is changing slowly over time. Um, so if they're only gonna insure you for one year, that 10, 20 year look isn't so important for insurers. Uh, and they can adjust their risk as an insurer by changing the premium. Exactly what we've seen, right? We have a property here in Northern California and the insurance has tripled in the last two years for, because of wildfire risk. Um, and, uh, and so I think it's just a, a, the alignment of the insurer versus the owner and the lender, it, it, it's, it's different. And I think the owner and lender are, need to take a longer look
0: that's interesting so the the risk that you're modeling out is over ten or twenty years, and obviously it seems like with thing all things climate the the change is modest on a year to year basis, but it's it's the long term trend that is concerning um and because the uh the insurer basically gets to reset their their own risk right they get to re-underwrite it once a year they're not too concerned about it as long as The consumers are still willing to pay that increased premium.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think insurers care. I'm not writing them off, but I think it's uh, customer's perception, customer education on their end and helping people understand why these premiums are increasing. Yeah. Um, But I think building it into their model and how they price the premium, uh, I think it's less important.
0: It's interesting because I, so I had this experience, I guess it was in 2020. Uh, I have a short-term rental in the Colorado mountains and, you know, similar to California, a lot of increase in fire, wildfire activity. And uh, my sister was actually staying at the, uh, at the property for the first time ever and called me and had to evacuate because there is a wildfire in the area. Um, Fortunately, didn't lose the house, but it sort of really got me very nervous and got me to, you know, beef up my insurance policy. But for a while, I couldn't even find an insurance policy that met my criteria. Like I wanted to make sure I had business interruption insurance. I wanted to make sure that the replacement value was keeping up with the cost of construction and all these things. And it made me worried that in the future, some of these properties that are either like mine in wildfire risk or coastal or in a floodplain, like, is there a risk in your opinion that they will be uninsurable at any point?
2: Yeah. I mean, we've seen that happen in California here. Uh, folks are, can't find insurance and the state is having to step in and create policy to help, help people get insurance. Uh, and so, yeah, there, there, there are these risks, you know? Um, and I think ultimately you can get insurance is like, what's the premium you have to pay for that risk. And how does that affect us as investors? I mean, insurance is a line item. Uh, on our costs, it's, it increases our OPEX and if that expands too much, you know, alongside all the other factors, maintenance and repair, um, which is also affected by these hazards, um, ultimately affects our, our net operating income and our, the yield of these investments. So I think it's an important factor to look at.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess for me, traditionally having underwritten deals and analyzing deals, insurance is not something i normally think about that much to be honest like it is what it is you assign some standard inflation pegged increase in costs you know premiums go up five percent ten percent but especially uh in these these riskier areas like i understand that owning a property in the mountains in, in colorado is risky and will become riskier over time um i should probably re rethink how I'm modeling those premiums and make sure that the uh, the numbers still make sense uh, on those kinds of deals. Yeah. And
2: I think also, you know, with the data, I mean, for your property in Colorado, um, you can start understanding the risk, right? You're aware of it. It's a tangible risk. You've experienced it in evacuation. Next step is quantify the risk, understand, you know, put rails around to understand what the risk really is. And insurance is kind of is an impact, a line item impact, but there's, um, you know, Cap X projects you can do on that property to reduce the risk. Um, and that's really kind of how folks use the data. We give the risk data and then the next step is how do we protect ourselves, right? You can clear brush around the building. You could put smaller uh, vents over your, your roof vents, finer roof vents so embers don't fly in. There's very simple, inexpensive things you can do to that home to that rental property uh, to reduce your risk of of loss some type of insurable event happening to that specific property
0: huh that's super interesting
2: yeah it's not yeah more than just quantifying how your insurance is going to increase over time but what can we do to protect ourselves protect our homes protect our communities
0: right right yeah and this this place in colorado i, I have they 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 do a, there's an HOA, it's a small HOA, but they do, uh, the HOA basically exists for fire safety and they, uh, clear brush and they offer these wood chipping programs where if you clear brush, they'll come around and do wood chipping. They put in, uh, three cisterns and, and retention ponds, uh, in the community, um, to, in case there is fire. So, uh, I definitely resonate with what you're saying. Um, Somehow I get all of that for twenty dollars a month. That's all the HOA costs. I don't really know how that happens, but it's it seems like a great service to me. Um, so I, I'm I'm lucky in that I have some of those resources. But in in your effort and your company's effort to sort of bring this data and information to. Mom and pop investors, and not just having these institutional investors use this. Is there a place where our audience and listeners can go to learn some of those common sense ways that they can mitigate risk and protect themselves against uh, climate risks in their area?
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, you know, go to our website, pull a report on your property. Uh, we give a 35 page deep dive into climate risk. Uh, and with each hazard that we cover, we give uh, you know, ways you can mitigate those risks, ways you can adapt your uh, property to uh, prevent, prevent damage. Um, and uh, they're pretty easy things. We list them from the kind of the least expensive to the most expensive. Um, and so, yeah, we, we wanna be a resource for folks to, to, to protect their properties. Uh, the goal is not to scare you and get you to sell your property in Colorado, but more how can we help you uh, and how, how can we help you reduce your risk?
0: Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's not, you know, it's obviously people are going to live in these places. It's about adapting and making sure that you're, you know, just like with anything in your business, you know, you understand risk and are taking the proper steps to to mitigate it. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, I, I want to ask you because you have experience as a developer, do you see this increased climate risk and some of this data that's coming out influencing Developers and like, I guess specifically, I'm curious the type of buildings that they're they're creating. Like, are they more climate resistant in some way? And the places where they're building, are they building more in areas where there is less risk, or is that something that is just maybe going to come in the future?
2: No, it's a it's a really good question, um, and it depends on the hazard. Uh, and it depends on the developer and, and the type of development, um, the safest places in general that we see across the data, um, particularly for wildfire are urban environments, um, urban infill, right? we built these natural protections. We have fire departments. We've got some space, uh, from the wildlife where the trees are, where the, where the burns happen. Uh, but we do see, and we did a study with Redfin, uh, where a lot of new developments um, happen in uh, the wildlife urban interface, right? Greenfield kind of suburban developments alongside the edge of the forest where fires happen. And so we are building kind of the, the newer suburban areas into these higher risk uh, locations for wildfire. Um, so, those development patterns, you know, are 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 a little concerning. I think it's something just folks need to be aware of when they're thinking about a location for development, what the investment thesis is um, around around where where to build.
0: Yeah, that that's always been a question of mine because you start to hear about honestly a premium for some of these features. Like as a consumer, a lot of people want climate neutral or climate safe buildings you know whether you know like you said like do they have the vents do they have defensible space um any of the other you know i'm not super uh versed on what the other mitigation strategies are but like it seems like not only is there a societal benefit opportunity but there is an economic opportunity for developers to be considering these things as they are building new
2: properties Yeah, completely. And understand the risks, address them. And I think that takes friction out of the transaction, whether you're renting the property or selling it to a homeowner or selling it to another investor. This information is becoming more and more ubiquitous, right? So the buyer knows, the renter knows about it, but say, Hey, look, we understand these risks are here and we've done these three things to help mitigate the risks. And then it it helps you move on from that that point.
0: It makes me wonder, I'm not sure if you have data about this, but I'll put you on the spot. It makes me wonder if consumers will be asking for this in a rental situation too, right? I can imagine being a home buyer, it's your first home, you're in Colorado or California and you've experienced these things and you're worried about wildfires or floods or whatever. I wonder if renters are going to start coming into you know approaching their rental decisions with the same type of concerns and demands from their rental properties do you know anything about that at all
2: I mean you could imagine right I mean it depends on the market if it's supply constrained you're gonna you know rent what you can get uh, and I think it's the same thing from investment right supply constrained you're gonna kind of chase yield and buy the property you can get but I, I think there's a world where Everyone starts looking at this and want to understand it. Because look, look, if there's a, a flood event, a renter is impacted, right? There's, there's loss to them. There's displacement. Uh, I, we do find that people search for hazards that they are familiar with, right? You've had an experience with wildfire. You know, uh, folks in New Orleans, Houston, uh, kind of hurricane areas have experiences with flood whether it's storm surge or surface flooding uh, and it's been part of their life and something they think about uh, and it's a it's a it's kind of an intuitive risk for them for their location so we'll see people searching kind of risks that they understand even if they're moving to a new market Um, and so really what we're trying to do is kind of make everyone aware of all the risks especially as we're moving to different states uh, different cities um, I think there's a, a a lot of good information in there that, that might not be as intuitive for people, but uh, it's intuitive for the people that live there uh, and have experienced those risks.
0: Yeah, that, that makes total sense. I mean, I now am always thinking about wildfires because I had this hopefully one-off experience. But, I mean, live, I lived in Colorado for 10 years, I'm sure, in California. You, you hear about it every summer. You know, you're, you go camping and you can't have a fire or you can see the smoke and these experiences, uh, they, they, uh, impact you for sure. And they, they definitely make you think about how you can, uh, protect yourself. Do you have any, any data or high level stats about like the general risk in the country? Like are most homes at severe risk of some sort of climate emergency or issue or, Uh, is this just limited to some of the cities that we've talked about so far?
2: Yeah, I think, I think everywhere is impacted. I mean, the answer to that is there's risk everywhere. Um, and it's, what is the risk? You know, we think about, um, the Southwest and extreme heat risk, you know, something we haven't talked about today much, but you know, this is a, this is a big risk. There's going to be a, uh, a huge increase in the number of extreme hot days, you know, and how does that affect you as a renter, as a homeowner, as an investor? There's gonna be uh, increased utility costs for AC. Uh, there's quality of life issues. Um, then we think about coastal cities and sea level rise. You know, this is a big one. Um, flooding is pretty consistent across the U.S. You know, a a lot of areas are exposed to different types of flooding, Um, drought uh, in the West. We're seeing a lot more drought. So, again, it's really region specific, but everywhere carries some type of uh, change in your exposure to these natural hazards. So uh, it's not necessarily like one thing everyone's going to experience, but we, we all carry some risk to climate change.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It seems like it's like a whack-a-mole thing. Like you look for one area, it's like, I don't want to be near a flood. And it's like, okay, you don't need to be near a flood, but you're going to get some wildfire. And it's like, well, I don't want wildfire. Well, you're going to get some extreme risk. just shows the, the breadth of the the challenge and the, um, the situation we're, we're all going to be dealing with over the next couple of decades. Um, are there any areas in the U.S. or even in the world that are like more climate- uh, I think the word's like resilient. Uh, and I don't mean like in terms of infrastructure, like how prepared people are. I mean like from a natural, you know, natural sense. Like, are there certain areas that don't like have relatively less climate risk?
2: I think as you move north more, uh, you know, certain risks decrease, uh, get away from the coasts. Uh, I think kind of the urban core is probably the safest answer. And I, I think those community municipal adaptation strategies building a seawall uh building a fire break around the city uh those are really important like how how are we adapting as communities because these risks exist and it's not like everyone's gonna leave the united states and go to you know canada or something um but how, how are we dealing with it as a community are we putting bonds in place to uh create adaptation strategies to keep the local community is safe. So I think a lot of this is about just engagement, discussion around the risks, uh, and figuring out w- you know what our strategies on indi- individual property level, and then what our strategy is kind of as a neighborhood and a community.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know if you know this. I live in the Netherlands in Amsterdam, and something I think it's about twenty six percent of the Netherlands naturally is below sea level. They have reclaimed a lot of land. They pump out water and they sort of dredge. Um, You know, they've been doing this for 800 years or something like that. Um, And they're obviously all worried about sea level rise uh, because we're already below sea level here. Um, And so it's interesting to see uh, what kind of mitigation strategies different communities are taking. They're building huge seawalls and expanding dykes and all of these things. And it is nice to see that there is some uh, proactivity. And it does sound like in the U.S. we're starting to see some more proactivity about um, mitigation strategies, planning in, in worst case scenarios. Do you do you have any information that you can share with us about that? Like how are communities, municipalities, states preparing for some of these climate change centric risks
2: yeah i think uh, adaptation's a big uh conversation uh and it's complex and it is federal level it is state level um and i think we're seeing most of the the stuff happen kind of a local municipal level um you know we see it here with how in in california where we have high fire risk building fire breaks um putting together uh, CAL FIRE, to, uh, uh, making sure it's well funded to protect from wildfires, uh, educating individual homeowners about what they can do. Um, and the same thing in Miami, right? We're thinking about, or where you live, uh, sea level rise and what we're gonna do about that to protect the cities. Um, so I think it really all comes down to local solutions. Um, and so engagement with those, those politicians and all those, those stakeholders.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's interesting. I think for for our listeners here, if you're buying properties, in addition to looking at some of the risk that Cal's been talking about for your individual property, it would be helpful for you to also look at what your municipalities are doing and if they're acknowledging any risks or how they're preparing or resources that might be available to you to upgrade your property. A lot of times municipalities offer tax breaks or incentives to um, do some of these mitigation strategies. So that could be um, a really good option for people out there. When I was uh, researching before the show, I saw, I read some article, I don't even remember where it was from, that said that Duluth, Minnesota is like the most perfect climate or like the most climate resilient place do you think like all of a sudden millions of americans are going to converge on duluth minnesota and start moving there
2: yeah i mean as a company we try to stay away from uh you know the extreme fear and trying to tell people sell (laughs) your house now and, and move move here because i don't think Uh, that's necessarily a solution, but I will say there are a lot of smart people, um, folks in academia and kind of investors that are looking at, uh, these ideas of climate migration. And when these big events happen, where are folks going to move? And, you know, where, where is, what is safer, uh, and, uh, exploring ideas of climate gentrification. Uh, and, and I do think there will be movement of people, uh, around, uh, when these kind of impactful events happen. Uh, and we've seen it in the past, uh, you know, big floods, uh, folks get displaced and they go to other communities. Um, and so I think it is something to watch and think about and kind of build into your investment thesis. Um, and by no, by no means are we trying to say like, you know, sell now, don't go to this area. But I, I think it's a factor to consider uh, as you're, as you're going out there.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was I I uh thought it was funny just like Duluth just seemed like such a random place. No offense to anyone from Duluth. Um but yeah, I I uh it I was curious and I actually written down a question for you is do you think there will be climate migration because I read uh, I think both for Hurricane Katrina back in 2005 and then the Houston flood I'm I'm blanking on what year that ba- that really bad flood was. Um people like got to play displaced left and never really went back. And it does, it did strike me that that could, if, if there is increased risk of wildfire or flood in major metropolitan areas, that that could, I don't know if it's going to be like a wholesale large migration change, but could have at least some, uh, some migration and population changes in the U S because of some of these risks.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, those two events are, are great examples of folks and, you know, where did they move? They moved to similar cities that had, um, similar, uh, job market, uh, supply of housing, similar supply of housing, uh, but it's adjacent and close to family. Um, so I think there's a a lot of factors to consider beyond kind of the risk of the event happening, uh, when you're thinking about climate migration, uh, and it's a it's a complex thing to model out. It's so multifactorial, but it does happen uh, as these as these events occur. Um, and uh, and again, I think it's an important data point to, to think about and look at uh, as you're as you're investing or buying.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for this information. Uh, we do have to get out of here in just a minute, Cal. But Is there anything else you think our audience should know about climate risk for real estate investors or? Anything else just about the data that you think is worth knowing?
2: No, I think, uh, you know, use the information alongside all the other information you look at when you're doing your due diligence. Uh, the information's now available, accessible. Uh, all you have to do is go to our website, uh, and type in an address, go to climatecheck.com, search an address and, uh, And try to try to understand your your risk to climate change a little bit while you're uh, looking at all these other data points um, in your investments.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you to Cal Inman, who is a real estate developer, investor and the creator and principal at Climate Check. Thank you so much for joining us on the market.
2: Hey, thank you.
0: Super interesting interview there with Cal Inman. Really enjoyed having the opportunity to talk with him. I personally learned a lot and hope that you all did too. This has been something that I've been thinking about, as I said uh, during the interview, I've had some experiences recently where a property I had came close to burning down in a wildfire. Um, I've invested in some cities that have experienced significant uh, hurricanes, for example, Uh, and I've just been curious to learn more as an investor what sort of risks are out there due to climate change and some of the the Uh, changes in insurance and lending that Cal was talking about. And I thought Cal did a great job just sort of presenting the data as it is and talking about how to appropriately use it. He's not saying that you should be going out there and changing all of your plans or to be panicking. What he's saying is just to inform yourself about what risks exist and what you can do to mitigate those risks if there are significant ones that you're worried about for your particular properties. This is just like when we talk about evaluating an individual market or individual deal. There are tons of data points that you have to think about and factor in and decide which markets are right for you to invest in, which deals are right for you to invest in. And hopefully from this episode, you can now add climate data and climate risk to your factors and your underwriting when you're considering deals. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, if you have feedback or thoughts on this episode, you can hit me up on Instagram where I am at the data deli. And if not, we will see you on Monday for another episode of On the Market. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. And a very special thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show on the market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. Investing in small multifamily properties is probably the most popular niche in the entire bigger pockets community. And there's a good reason for that. You can put as little as 3.5% down and own up to four units. So just think about that for a second. You can house hack where you live in one of the units, but in addition to having a place to live, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month. You have four kitchens and bathrooms that you could add value to to build equity. You could also turn one or more of the properties into a short-term rental or a medium-term rental. And all this, what I'm describing here is just one transaction. But of course the question is, where do you find one of these small multifamily properties that you can afford? Which markets and which deals are best for you? How about after you close? How do you manage it, optimize it? Keep scaling and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets, or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions. And luckily for you, they're going to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leka DeBatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient, great strategy, head to biggerpockets.com four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. I'll see you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only.